Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about the impeachment, no viewers, but 70% say yes, the biggest threats facing America. Frank Gaffney, national security expert and founder of Sanford Security Policy, joins me. The impeachment as an opportunity to recapture U.S. foreign policy, and finally, arrest and the Jeffrey Epstein death. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. I promised you, and I still promise you, I will not spend every show from now until the end of the impeachment hearing discussing various aspects of the impeachment, the testimony, the witnesses, the contradictions. I do want to hit two points today in this top five, or maybe three. One is that uh, Congressman Jim Jordan made the point as this impeachment hearing rolls on in Washington that really nothing has changed since the beginning of the impeachment hearing. We have a call transcript where there's no discussion of any linking of aid to the invest uh, aid to the investigation. We have the two people on the call, the two actual people participating, the principals, President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky, both saying there was no coercion, there was no quid pro quo, there was no linkage of aid to um, any of the uh, in, in, to engaging in an investigation. Number three, the Ukraine government had no idea that aid was being held back pending confirmation of the uh, intent with respect to the investigation. No corruption, no holding, no knowledge of any aid being hold, held back. And finally, President Zelensky didn't announce, didn't start, and didn't acknowledge he was going to start any investigation to get the aid released. It so it was released without contingencies. These are the facts that actually matter, even if you agree that the president should even be considered possibly to be impeached, even if he had tied aid to the Ukraine, to insisting on Ukraine investigating the uh, Biden-Burisma mess in 2016. So that's my first point today. Nothing has changed in all of this impeachment testimony. Point two, there was a poll a Fox poll that said that 70% of Americans, 70% of Americans say something, they think probably something President Trump did in the phone call with President Zelensky in July was not right. They don't say it makes it that he should be impeached, but 70% say probably something wasn't right. In this most recent poll, a Fox poll, 51% said, yeah, you know, it wasn't right and probably he should be impeached. But there's still a quarter of America who see no fault at all. You can break down more and more, but I want to tie that number. 70% of Americans saying that probably President Trump did something wrong to the fact that no one, statistically speaking, is watching the impeachment proceedings. No one. We have literally in America, if you consider we have 304.5 million Americans with a television set at home, about 4.5 3%. 4.3% of Americans are actually watching. This is a sham. It is a show. There's the Democrats running this impeachment have absolutely no belief that there was anything wrong with the phone call 
between President Trump and President Zelensky in July. We've talked many times in the show. I'm not going to go through the litany again today. But we'll talk a little bit later about something good that come out of the impeachment proceeding. But this is an ongoing coup against the president, the people who want to remove him using the Trump-Russia collusion mess, and then wanted to find obstruction, and then wanted to talk about the emoluments clause, and then wanted to talk about whether the president should or should not have paid off a uh, pole dancer uh, who was threatening him. All of those efforts that the Democrats launched off into to try to find a reason to remove the president. We're now at this impeachment involving the Ukraine, uh, com the conversation between Zelensky of the Ukraine and President Trump. I talked the other day, and I'm going to go back to it a little later in the show, that much of what is at the root of the Democrats' determination to remove this president has to do with how much of what the president will uncover as he was pushing, if he did, as, as he was encouraged, he did encourage the Ukrainians to look into 2016, figure out all this Biden Burisma mess and other things. As we talked about yesterday in the show, what has come to light is that the State Department has actually been funding Soros sourced NGOs, non-governmental organizations in the Ukraine pushing those organizations. So your tax dollars going to the State Department, going over to and, and funneled through our embassy in the Ukraine to support NGOs that Soros has funded, the NGO's entire purpose being to agitate the population, agitate the base. And this is really what the Democrats are very, very, very worried about having the American public come to understand all the nefarious ways in which our State Department money was being misused by people with a most un-American agenda inside the State Department. More on that topic later. But first we have, as I wrap up this first five, we, I want to mention again, we have an interview starting in the next segment. The interview is with Frank Gaffney. And I'm going to tell you about him before I bring him on, and then we can um, move forward with that interview. But Frank Gaffney is the founder of the Center for Security Policy. It's based in Washington, D.C. Prior to founding that organization, Frank Gaffney worked in the uh, Reagan era. He worked in the Reagan era as a assisting the President Reagan with national defense strategy, strategery, to use George Bush's word. We have, in April of 1987, Frank Gaffney was nominated by President Reagan to become the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy, the senior position in the Defense Department with responsibility for policies involving U.S., USSR relations, nuclear forces, arms control, missile defense policy, and U.S.-European defense ties. The reason I want to talk to Frank Gaffney today is this. America and much of the population and the mainstream media are thinking about and ruminating about the effort of the Democrats to remove the duly elected president of this country. They're focused on the impeachment. Out here in the real world, outside of Washington and all of the buzz around the impeachment, we actually still have in our country serious national security threats to be considering, understanding what they are, understanding how we deal with them, are we doing everything we can to protect ourselves from those uh, threats. And if there ever was a person who has been in Washington through a variety of, uh, for quite a while, Washington, he's been part, as I mentioned, in the Reagan administration, talking about strategy dealing with Russia. He's also been, as I say, he founded the Center for Security Policy. And that organization has brought in expert after expert after expert to look at all of the threats facing America, understanding what are this, the security threats America faces, 
You hear about North Korea, you hear about Russia, you hear about radical Islam, you hear about other possible trouble spots in the world. And you also understand, we all understand, there are many, many ways to deal with those threats. It isn't always just because something is a threat to America, the only answer being military. And one of the great things about Frank Gaffney and the Center for Security Policy is that in his time working for President Reagan, they came to understand that the way to fight the enemy of that time, which was communist Russia and the spread of communism, but the way to fight that was not merely militarily. It was a military buildup, so we really kind of outbuilt the Russians, but a variety of tactics that we can use as Americans to defend our country that are not military, do not involve committing troops, but they are economic warfare, they are propaganda warfare, information warfare. And for someone who's been in Washington so long, I wanted to have him come on and talk with us about what the threats are that fate, that are challenging America today. So, with that introduction, and Frank Gaffney of the Center for Security Policy, he's now the executive chairman there. As I say, he was the founder that was founded in 19, uh, 1988. I believe we have Frank Gaffney online. So, hi, Frank. Hello, Debbie. It's so good to be with you. Thank you for having me again. So happy to have you. Well, I'm just going to jump right in and tell our listeners. Um, I heard Frank Gaffney speak at an event last night, actually, and he was talking about how the Center for Security Policy, this just tremendous organization in Washington with so many experts on all sorts of threats facing America. What do you see here in 2019? To three, you mentioned in this, I want to have you share them, the three biggest threats you see in uh, threats to America's security and safety in the year 2019. I want to have you give a brief overview of three of them, and we're going to dive in and talk about each of them. Sure. Uh, I hearken back to something that my old boss, Ronald Reagan, famously said, and that is that every generation faces an existential threat to freedom. And I believe there are three that are operating at the moment um, to varying degrees. Uh, most of us are perhaps somewhat aware of them, but unfortunately, I'm afraid we're not as aware of them as we should be. And the first of them, certainly since 9-11, it's been clear, is something that I think is best described as Sharia supremacism. And Debbie, you and I have talked about this a lot over the years. Um, Sharia is, of course, the code of uh, authoritative Islam, a sort of political, military, legal doctrine that is supposed to govern every aspect of the faithful Muslim's life. And it's fundamentally an ideology, and it's similar to communism in the sense that it is brutally repressive, um, centralized, controlling, uh, and, and, you know, uh, barbaric in many respects. And it is worse in a way because it has a god, which, of course, atheistic communism does not have. Then a second one is communist China. Speaking of atheistic um, communism, that is the program of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they've deviated considerably from the sort of economic tenets of communism, but it's the political, it's the the totalitarian character of the system that I think is what we should be focused on. And they've made it very clear under the leadership of Xi Jinping, the current general secretary of the Communist Party of China, 
that uh, his purpose is to supplant the United States as the dominant power in the world. And if that requires using force against us, so be it. If it doesn't, they'll use other means, uh, kind of unrestricted warfare, uh, employing all kinds of asymmetric techniques, including a lot having to do with our economy. And that's a serious problem as well, giving rise ultimately, I'm afraid, unless it's addressed effectively uh, to an existential threat to freedom in our time. And thirdly, uh, I personally believe this is in some ways the, the most imminent, the most potentially catastrophic of all, and that is the dependency that the United States, as we know it today, has on electricity. Uh, fundamentally, the system that supplies it to all of us, uh, we take it for granted. It's basically very reliable. Um, it's relatively uh, cost-effective. And we can't live without it, is the simple truth of the matter. Every one of the other critical infrastructures would cease to exist if that most critical of critical infrastructures went down. And unfortunately, our enemies all of them. I mentioned China, of course, Russia, uh, still a very serious problem. North Korea, Iran, uh, perhaps others appreciate that without our electrical grid functioning as it normally does, um, this country would, in fairly short order, cease to be the 21st century superpower that it is. And our society, our, our republic, would almost certainly cease to be what it is as well. Uh, many of us would simply lose our lives. Uh, so these all give rise to, um, as you said, Debbie, the sorts of things that I respectfully suggest we're not paying enough attention to. And we're certainly not following Ronald Reagan's admonition to rise to these challenges, to face them as our generational responsibility in order to ensure that we can pass on this freedom-loving nation to our children and our children's children, as we had it passed on to us. I love that summary. Thank you very much. And I want to run through each of those. And I, um, the Sharia supremacism, and uh, sometimes in other terms, people talk about radical Islam, but the, using the term Sharia supremacism really hones in on what the problem is with respect in Islam, which is Sharia, which is law born of what is of Islam's teachings, is intended to supplant in the minds of those committed to Sharia supremacism to supplant law and order, uh, to, to the actual existence of law, the existence of government in any country which they can, uh, for, into which they can force into submission to Islam. So. With uh, the threat of Sharia supremacism, I know we obviously in America are very proud and grateful that President Trump led the charge in moving um, more aggressively to contain ISIS, which was a great step. The, the, at least the little mini caliphate that got going over there in Syria and Iraq was reduced by President Trump. But in your, with all your national security expertise, what are the top things we should be doing as Americans, policy-wise, to address Sharia supremacism? You know, I, I think it's to Donald, Donald Trump's great credit, uh, Debbie, that back in August of 2016, when he was running for the presidency, he laid out, I think it's a basically five-step approach, a strategy, if you will, towards defeating what he called radical Islamic terrorism. I 
prefer Sharia supremacism, but I think he's basically right that we're dealing with a hostile ideology. Uh, he actually used the term Sharia, as I recall, in that speech at one point. Yep. He talked about not only taking down the caliphate of ISIS, but also um, of dispensing with this horrible deal that was struck with Iran by Barack Obama. Uh, which has done so much to um, fuel its continuing aggression uh, towards uh, uh, neighbors in the Middle East, notably Israel, and towards us. Um, he talked about ending the practice of bringing more uh, Sharia supremacists to this country, uh, jihadists, if you will. And not least, Debbie, he talked about the need to stop the networks that were, as he put it, radicalizing in our communities. And by that, I think he was really speaking of the Muslim Brotherhood, a Sharia supremacist um, enterprise that has lots of different front groups, uh, notably the Council on American-Islamic Relations, better known by its acronym as CARE. Um, but many others as well, and what they're trying to do through sort of stealthy jihadist means, what they call civilization jihad, to take us down from within. And so those sort of five steps, understanding the ideology, dealing with ISIS, dealing with Iran, stop importing more jihadists, and take out the Muslim Brotherhood, are all things that the president correctly said needed to be done, and he's basically delivered to very on four of the five, the one that has yet to be really addressed and needs to be urgently is the Muslim Brotherhood and its efforts here to subvert us or, if you will, as they put it, destroy us from within by our own hands. To quote the words from the, um, the uh, memorandum. Explanatory memorandum. Yeah. Well, that's actually... I Written by one of their top operatives. Yeah, actually, you know, I, my listeners have heard about this before, but just in case... We have new listeners, which we do. Will you quickly tell us about that uh, that you were just describing, the explanatory memorandum? Sure. Yeah, this is a fantastic story. Very quickly, um, we only tumbled upon it uh, because of a traffic stop on an artery near Washington called the Chesapeake Bay Bridge back in 2004. And it resulted in uh, the FBI finding a man they'd been looking for who had been raising funds for Hamas in Chicago. And when they went to his home to do a search there, uh, they discovered it was filled with 80 banker boxes worth of documents that turned out on inspection and in some cases translation to be the archives of the Muslim Brotherhood in North America. This isn't a sleepy little, you know, suburban bungalow in uh, Annandale, Virginia. And those documents contained, among other things, this report from one of the top Muslim Brotherhood operatives back in 1991, a fellow by the name of Muhammad Akram, back to the mothership in Egypt, the headquarters of the Muslim Brotherhood, describing what they were doing, how they had been coming with their efforts as he put it, the mission of the Muslim Brotherhood was, quote, destroying Western civilization from within by our hands, meaning the infidels, if you will, and the believers, so that Allah's religion would be victorious over all other religions, unquote. 
Now, that document was used uh, to decisive effect in the largest terrorism financing trial in U.S. history, that right down where you live, Debbie, in Dallas, Texas, back in uh, 2008. It, it helped put away five co-conspirators who also were raising money for Hamas. And it was supposed to serve, I believe, as the basis for the prosecution of many of these Muslim Brotherhood front groups. Indeed, hundreds of them were named yep. in that trial as unindicted co-conspirators. And then something happened. <clears throat> Barack Obama was elected. And that whole prosecution, uh, fortunately the conviction was achieved, uh, but the whole prosecution of the Muslim Brotherhood fronts came to naught. And in fact, the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated and was able to greatly influence the policies of uh, the Barack Obama administration to our great and lasting detriment. To our great detriment is right. One thing I love the Center for Security Policy does, all your work I love, but one thing you do is you, you talk many times about the need to have the American public understand the threat because if, if what has occurred, of course, is that on the American left, the, the uh, you know, Marxist, socialist uh, supporters of Islamization, those people work very hard to shape American public opinion and to characterize any questioning about our refugee policy, about who we bring here, about keeping an eye on organizations that may be a threat to America, characterize that as Islamophobic and hateful and intolerant. There needs to be, I mean, your organization is stellar. There need to be more voices in America raising that awareness because even if President Trump or whoever uh, in the future our presidents are see the threat you're describing, they understand they should be doing something. If they don't have the American people behind them, then they're, they're stymied. They are a little bit afraid to act. They're not going to move forward. So I really commend your organization because I know you try so hard to keep to help keep the, all of the American public tuned into these, the, these threats. It's, it's, a, it's a huge part of solving and, and protecting America's national security mm -hmm. to have American people aware of that. Love that you do that. Yeah. If you well, want to, go ahead. Thank you so much for recognizing it and, uh, and appreciating it, Debbie, as you do. I, I just would simply say, I believe this is very much central to the strategy of these Muslim Brotherhood operations is to silence people like us and many others who have in fact tumbled on to what they're about, who understand that this is a mortal threat to our country, an existential threat. Even if it's not violent at the moment, this kind of subversion inside our wire, as they say, yeah. is a perilous thing and only by raising awareness about it, only by, as you say, increasing the, I call it national security mindedness of the public, can we support politicians and insist that they address themselves to dealing with uh, the enemy within problem. It needs to be done. Absolutely. So the second of the three threats, again, when you are, your organization, and you in particular, having worked in national security and been immersed in national security policy, assessing risks, understanding options, you know, since the Reagan era, so you're in, your, uh, in Washington today, continuing your work with Center for Security Policy, the second of the three threats you describe uh, facing America has to do with China and China's aggression. And I know you talked a little bit last night about at this, where I heard you speak about this idea that China is extremely committed, determined 
to be to be aggressive, to spread its power, to, to spread its um, the, the spread its control, and so. Within China, you can you you feel sorry for the many of the citizens living there. But what kinds of things that China's doing now actually pose a threat to America? In Let me just make an important distinction yeah. at the outset, Debbie. Um, there's China, and then there's the Chinese Communist Party, and the Chinese Communist Party runs the place. It is doing so increasingly. We're watching it play out in Hong Kong, for example, at the moment. Um, and, you know, with respect to many of the people of China, notably, but not exclusively, uh, Muslim Uyghurs in Western China, um, Christians, Falun Gong, and, and ordinary Chinese, for that matter, are being brutally repressed by this regime that, over its history, has killed, by some estimates, as many as 100 million of its own people. Of its own people. Yeah. Right. So the problem is, I have just a sort of rule of thumb, if a country is that horrible to its own people, it's likely not going to be terribly magnanimous towards ours. And that's being played out in real time as China's power, both economic and increasingly now military, is rising and they are becoming much less concerned about concealing both the nature of that power and their ambitions concerning what to do with it than they had previously been. And so I think more and more of us are becoming aware that there's a problem here. There's a problem, as Donald Trump has pointed out a lot, with trade, with the theft of our intellectual property, with the uh, efforts to destroy our industries and make us dependent upon very dubious supply chains from China. That's, that's one set of very serious threats, I believe. For example, uh, we talked about it last night, Debbie, the fact that China now supplies the world, not just us, but basically everybody else, with the vast majority of the medicines mm -hmm. upon which we rely. Well, you might ask yourself, what could possibly go wrong with that? Yeah. Well, one thing yeah. is maybe they adulterate what's in them, mm -hmm. or maybe they simply stop supplying them. Both of those would be terribly, yeah. terribly um, horrific for our country and people. Um, then there's the, the other kinds of things that they've been doing. Uh, they have been putting into place um, devices and techniques for controlling um, vital international waters through about a trillion dollars worth of trade passes every year in the South China Sea. They've built bastions to essentially control it and dictate who can use those waters and the airspace above them. These are the sorts of things that I think can profoundly affect our economy. Um, they're doing the same in space at the moment, and we depend critically on space for both commercial and military security purposes. When you say and space, not least, you mean the impact on much satellites? Of this Sorry, I'm talking about the ability to operate in space and deny other people, including okay. us, the ability to do the same. Uh, some of it involves satellites, which are used as weapons. Some of it involves the idea of uh, colonizing what they call the Earth-Moon system. Uh, that is to say, you know, uh, operating on the planet, uh, on the uh, the moon itself and projecting power from it and from other points in uh, uh, geosynchronous space. The, these are people who are deadly serious about controlling 
the world. And they realize that space is a vital um, domain from which to do just that. They're doing the same thing, by the way, in uh, connection with the next generation of telecommunications technology, 5G yes. it's called, fifth generation. And the trouble with this, Debbie, is if you control the systems whereby the world, if they have their way, the world will be communicating, you have the ability to access all of the data, proprietary, personal, commercial, military, what have it, that moves through those telecommunications nodes. And that means that they can be not only tapped, mined, exploited, manipulated, they can be weaponized. And you know, there's talk about an internet of things. I'm not sure most people know what that refers to, but basically it's the idea that with this kind of powerful telecommunications technology, everything that you have in your home or that you know facilitates your life can be dependent upon uh, that telecommunication system and the data that flows through it can be exploited as i say at if it is weaponized let's just say oh i don't know your automobile is controlled by a 5g system and somebody decides they want to kill you well running that uh, car into some sort of pole or you know barrier or, or off a cliff is a uh, child's play. So these are the sorts of things that, again, we're not probably, most of us, actively thinking about, but I would commend to your listeners a terrific new book by Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House, called Trump versus China. Yeah. And it's about, you know, dealing with what he calls the greatest uh, threat to our country. And I think China certainly is. I, after I heard you mention that last night, I'm going to get that book, read and memorize. I can't wait. I can't wait to get that one. Um, yeah. One last thing on China, and then I want to turn to the last threat you mentioned, which is about the electric grid, which is the biggest one of all. But in this kind of broad coverage of what threats America faces, we've talked about Sharia supremacism around China and China's aggression. What is the Belt Road Initiative? Can you describe that for our listeners? Sure. The Belt and Road Initiative is a term that uh, Xi Jinping coined to describe his colonial empire building operation. Um, and if you look at a map of the world, an awful lot of it has now begun to tie into this sort of complex of uh, infrastructures, uh, things like airfields, port. Well, might have had a little freeze up there. Okay, he's probably still speaking well. Uh, we're trying to reestablish that connection. I really want to commend to our listeners while we're talking here with Frank Gaffney, the founder and the chief executive of the Center for Security Policy. Their website, the easy way to find it is securefreedom.org, but it's also, it's the centerforsecuritypolicy.org. It is just full of national security, serious, substantive, actual experience experts, people leaving the arena of the military, the government, people actually informed people join this organization and help America keep abreast with what challenges we face in this country. And this is a, it's just a, uh, 
an enormously important organization. I happen to hear uh, Frank Gaffney, the gentleman we're speaking to, was in Dallas last night. He's back in Washington today, but he was speaking about the threats. And, you know, to understand from a, a person of his uh, experience level, having been in the Reagan era, then working with the president, President Reagan and his team, trying to figure out how do you defeat this monolithic threat of uh, communist Russia. And I believe we now have President, we now have Frank Gaffney back. Is that right? You do indeed. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened, but I was talking about um, the Chinese control of infrastructures and mm. maybe they just shut ours down. I don't know. But the point is, Debbie, that the Belt and Road Initiative is a kind of payday loan scheme on steroids, whereby uh. the Chinese go into a country and say, listen, I'll, uh, I'll build you all kinds of wonderful things that will lift your society out of poverty and give you access to ports and airfields and roads and trains and so on. And, and all you have to do is just sign right here for a loan that'll pay for all of that. Well, the only problem is that the loans are, well, payday loans. They're uh, the trap, it's called, whereby you never actually can pay off the loan. You get into default, and then the Chinese own all of that infrastructure, and they can then begin using it for their purposes, not the purposes of the country in oh. question, which often increasingly include military power projection. So it's a true colonial operation, yeah. and a lot of the world is, is falling prey to it, um, particularly, as I say, on the digital side, but also to considerable degree these physical um, infrastructures as well. Like ports, and I believe I was reading recently where China's now taken possession of a port in Kenya because it, because Kenyans couldn't pay back. Is that right? Do you know of that? Right. Simply, well, yeah. I, I, it's hard to keep track of all of the places where this is beginning to come a cropper. And the question is, you know, does that slow down uh, China's success in dominating um, country after country after country? Certainly, there's plenty of reason for countries that are thinking about this to uh, decide to give it a miss. But I think Kenya is one of those that has uh, fallen prey to the, the payday loan, the tr debt trap, if you will. And there are certainly others, and, and there will be more in the not too distant future. And for us, because many of these countries or many of these airfields or many of these ports are in proximity to strategic choke points yes. around the world. <laughs> they have an ability to use them to decisively constrict our operations of uh, commercial and, and national security. And the prime example of this, Debbie, as you know, I'm sure is uh, actually years before um, Xi Jinping came along, the Chinese managed to take over commercial port facilities at both ends of the Panama Canal. What could go wrong? What that has meant is they they uh, they can dictate who can use that canal. And almost certainly under circumstances of their choosing, it won't be American warships, which we may need to move from the Atlantic to the Pacific to deal with the sorts of threats China is now presenting of a more traditional military kind as well. We could probably talk hours on just your first point is Sharia supremacism, hours on China. And the third one I also want to hit, I know you said that you believe it to be the most threatening, most significant, and that is the threat to America's unprotected 
electric grid, or you spoke of it in terms of our reliance on electricity. So very quickly, I want to just say, I think many Americans hear the idea that the America's electric grid is not secure, that we is vulnerable to attack from enemies, vulnerable even to attack from from a, an episode with the sun. I forgot the name of the thing the sun can do. But people get to this mindset, they well, you know what? On planet Earth, people survive for centuries, millennia, actually, without electricity. So, okay, so we all have to camp and cook over fires. How could this possibly be so deadly? So could you just say in a summary way, what, what is so different about now versus most of human history? Why would the loss of the electric grid be so catastrophic to America? Yeah. It's a great question, Debbie. And I, I guess I would just invite your listeners to think about what their lives would be like without electricity. All of the things that they take for granted, as I said, that they depend on. In some cases, I mean, people's, uh, you know, hearts won't tick, for example, without certain uh. medica medications or uh, interventions that require electricity, uh, refrigeration, what have you. Uh, and any number of other medical conditions, of course. But you're, you know, getting access to your bank account ain't going to happen. Um, transportation becomes a problem. Even if your car will work, and it might not, depending on what kind of attack it is, um, you may not have fuel for very long. Um, it just goes on and on. But the point is, I guess, to the specific question you've just raised, people certainly survived without electricity before its advent, let alone before it became as important to our lives as it is now. There just weren't as many of them as there are at the moment. And this is what prompted uh, a Blue Ribbon Commission of the Congress, uh, chaired by Dr. William Graham, uh, to conclude in, in Dr. Graham's words that if the power went out and stayed out in America over large areas of it for a year, nine out of 10 of us would be dead. And that's simply because this country's population would return to the levels that uh, we used to have when it was a pre-industrial society, when we would subsist off the, uh, the land we tilled ourselves. Only yeah. it probably would be a smaller percentage of the people because it would take a generation or two almost certainly to learn again how to subsist off the land, how to grow your own food, how to store the food, how to, how to till the land with a Maybe a yes. horse if you had one. I mean, these are the sorts of things that it's almost impossible to wrap your head around. And we have to, especially if we're not going to do anything about making the grid more resilient. And that, I have to say, Donald Trump, to his great credit, in March of this year, issued an executive order saying, we are going to make the electric grid resilient. And I'm, I've just come out of a meeting in which we've been talking about the very, very concerted effort that is being made by many people inside his government, his own administration. I mean, there's a lot of talk. I know you do it every day, talking about the deep state. This is a place where the deep state is very, very active and very, very effective in stymieing the sorts of, well, the sorts of uh, resiliency-enhancing measures that we so desperately need with respect to our grid. And as long as that's the case, 
we're going to continue to be vulnerable to devastating attack. And that's what makes me think this is the most immediate of the existential threats. I, I think that uh, the, the Sharia one is a one and growing. I think the China one is going to be with us for a very long time in all likelihood, unless we find a way to really turn it around. But this could, you know, this grid down situation, for heaven's sakes, parts of California have a grid down situation right now and have in some places for some weeks. This could be upon us at any time. And I'm glad you mentioned this problem of even if none of the enemies who have very closely studied our vulnerability to uh, suspension of our electrical production and distribution, all of whom have taken steps to actually equip themselves yes. to yep. induce that condition. Line, Even if yep. none of that happens, we still have the problem that Mother Nature is overdue for a terrible uh, geomagnetic disturbance, as it's called, an intense solar storm. And if that happens, it would have much the same effect in terms of uh, bringing down, we believe, probably not just our grid, but an awful lot of other people's besides. Yeah, you know, we, Frank, this is, as I said, we, I know we talked about this topic before, we probably will again, but the electromagnetic, uh, the, the electric grid and the, the danger of electromagnetic pulse or uh, any other reason which our grid goes down, it's the most troubling because it's completely in our control to fix, completely within our, our power, our capacity. And I think people That's actually, right. when you say that there are deep staters who are just undermining the effort to get it done it makes people think either they're really nefarious which they are or they think this couldn't be that big a problem because why would anyone who you know has to live in america fight this effort so i know we're over time i know i think i told you 20 minutes i think we're getting close to 30 so i need to let you go and do your thing but in washington uh but Tell me quickly, how much would it cost to fix, and what is the reason those who are against it, why would they not want it fixed? Yeah. Great questions, uh, Debbie, and uh, I'm happy to take the time that you have available at any time. As I mentioned, I just came out of a meeting, and I'm talking with people who are trying to do something about this problem. And one of them shared with me a, a powerful anecdote about some of the other people who are now pulling in behind an effort uh, actually to, to help make San Antonio the first resilient city in the country. And this person who was offering to help said that they're his children too who would be affected. How, how anybody in this country doesn't recognize that it would be their children too, their, their loved ones of every other generation for that matter. This problem, I think, fundamentally comes down to the following. We're comfortable with the way we've done business all these years. The challenge of making electricity available affordably to large numbers of people has been solved in this country. And as long as there's no particular threat to it, um, don't fool around with changing it because you might break it. Well, there uh. is a particular threat to it, a multitude of particular threats to it, but I think people have tended to say, well, but that's probably not as serious as some people are making it out to be, and therefore we can just leave things the way they are and we'll get through the next quarter of our 
of our earnings, and uh, and it, maybe it'll be somebody else's problem if it actually materializes. It's it's grossly irresponsible. It's reckless, actually, because it's endangering yes. hundreds of millions of Americans. And God bless Donald Trump for saying he wants to fix this problem, and it behooves all of us, Debbie. And this is one of the reasons why we're focused on it so closely at the Center for Security Policy and have been for so many years, and why I appreciate so much what you're doing with your radio broadcasts and what others are doing as well, to just make sure that our countrymen and women understand that this existential threat to freedom, especially is, as you say, within our power to fix. The others I think we can do a lot about too and are working on some very specific and constructive solutions for doing it. But this one most especially, we cannot indulge in this idea that it's, it's just not a problem or it's just inconvenient and we won't do anything about it on our watch. We'll hope somebody else does it on theirs. Frank Gaffney, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today um, by phone. Appreciate that so much. People who want to, I encourage our listeners, while when our call broke off, I encourage them to go to your website. But again, go to securefreedom.org. Um, I also go to centerforsecuritypolicy.org, but securefreedom.org is easier. Just full of new information every single day. Lots of data, depth, detail by actual experts talking about all the challenges facing America. So Frank Gaffney, thanks for joining us. Pleasure is mine ever. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks so Take much, care. sir. Okay, well, I'm so glad, folks, we had the chance to do that interview. I do have two other topics. I am going to hit them at lightning speed. Short summary, I'll come back to them later in the week. My next topic I want to mention is just this idea that we need to look at this impeachment. We've been at it from, you know, 25 angles on the show. We could look at this impeachment as an opportunity to refresh, to renew, to recapture control of our foreign policy in this country. Where we are right now, what many people are now realizing is that we are watching the Democrats in Washington go after President Trump, try to remove him from office in significant part because they do not wish to have the public airing public becoming aware of all that was going on inside the Ukraine in 2016 with the then ambassador under President Obama, Yovanovitch, with the our own State Department using your tax dollars going over to, through the State Department, your money going over to the Ukraine and funding organizations that George Soros created and or his, that you know, the spider web going out from George Soros' organizations that are literally determined, intending to create disruption to create unrest and foment unrest and protest with the mission of bringing down that country and putting in place, so resulting the unrest, resulting in the removal of the government, the overthrow of the government, putting in a government they like better. This is a conscious ongoing plan by George Soros, who just deplores the concept of human liberty, deplores the concept, all the concepts on which America was based, and you have people in our State Department happily aiding and abetting that Soros effort. In particular, why I say maybe the impeachment can be used in a positive way if the House actually votes for impeachment, which I gotta tell you, Pelosi's getting nervous because the polling is not looking good in the swing states. Heartland America is telling her, stop hassling the president, wait it out. You have an election coming up, you know, in, in a year basically. And if people are unhappy, they'll take him out. And if they want him to be president, who do you think you are removing him? So Pelosi realizes she faces that threat, but 
back to my point about the positive value of the impeachment. If this is, if we do get the impeachment vote by the House and it goes over to the Senate, we need to have our Senate do a full, full hearing about every single aspect of the Ukrainian-American relations going back at least to 2016, probably 2015, all the involvement of the FBI, Hillary Clinton, the Democrat National Committee, the State Department helping the Ukrainian government interfere in America's elections on behalf of Hillary to help Hillary and defeat Trump. This is what the Democrats want to avoid. They want the impeachment and they don't want you Americans understanding what really happened. But on foreign policy, we'll have to do this another day, but on foreign policy, Part of what's happened over decades and decades is the State Department has grown in power, is viewed as a a bureaucracy full of extremely wise individuals who are just, you know, filled with knowledge of the detailed history of countries and the diplomacy and the the people and the tactics. And so they, they tout themselves as experts and they become kind of the government itself. They function as the foreign policy arm of the government and almost at the, at the um, at separate from, you know, unique from, unattached to the presidency and under President Trump actually working against the presidency. So the notion that foreign policy is a constitutional right, obligation, and responsibility of the president and the president says foreign policy and the State Department executes it and the people inside the State Department who lost track of who's in charge, lost track of who's actually supposed to be setting policy policy, whose policy they must follow, bringing that State Department back and the and more broadly speaking, bringing the bureaucracy in Washington back under the constitutional structure of our country would be at least a healthy outcome of this impeachment. One last topic for today, very quickly, you know, I have not gone on and on and on about Jeffrey Epstein, uh, but many of us have seen all of these um, uh, memes. Everyone's trying to come up with clever memes to, to where you think you're reading something about sports or something about a fall recipe or something else, then they manage to stick in, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. And so it's become kind of a competition, you know, how many people get lured in to read that yet again. But two developments actually happened very noteworthy in the Jeffrey Epstein case. As you likely know, Jeffrey Epstein found dead in his jail cell August 10th of this year. The medical examiner ruled it was a, uh, a, a suicide, that he had, uh, had killed himself. So they had the medical examiner uh, making that rule, the city medical examiner ruling that it was a suicide. And then you had a forensic pathologist forensic pathologist hired by Epstein's brother, Mark Epstein, who said uh, his autopsy showed that the injuries to Jeffrey Epstein were more consistent with homicidal strangulation. Two developments. One, two guards inside the jail were arrested. They're to be, I believe, arraigned today. They were arrested for filling out to falsely filling out forms. They were on duty that night and they were required to check in on Jeffrey Epstein every half an hour and they didn't do it. And they falsified their forms, you know, just checking off, yeah, we checked on him, he's fine. And they hadn't checked on him. They have both declined a plea deal because all it is is a simple form. If all they're really pleading guilty to is, yeah, I I fibbed on the form, I said I'd check, I didn't really bother. But both of them refused 
to plead guilty, refused the plea deal. So they're being arraigned today. They're going to be brought forward on charges. And maybe we'll learn something from them about if whether they were encouraged to not check, whether they checked and, and you know, weren't supposed to report what they saw. But at least you have that tiny step forward. The other step was there was testimony. You hardly ever hear about because all we hear about is impeachment. But testimony in the United States Senate by the Bureau of Prisons Director Kathleen Hawk Sawyer, who said yesterday that there is an FBI investigation uh, into whether or not there was a criminal enterprise involved in the death of Jeffrey Epstein. That, my friends, is huge. And now I'm going to turn and tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. To start with the impeachment, no one is watching the impeachment. 4% of America is watching. Nobody's watching, yet the headlines and the sound bites are subtly persuading some Americans that something must be wrong. This is like impeachment by innuendo. Do not fall for this. Be clear. The impeachment sham is an utterly fraudulent coup attempt of the deep state. It has no legal merit. The depth of corruption of Obama, Biden, and the Ukraine and the 2016 election interference by the Dems, CIA, DOJ, FBI, and the State Department funding Soros' NGOs to agitate unrest. These are the stories the swamp wants to smother. The truth must come out. The impeachment, this impeachment is an attack on America's voters and on the Constitution. Frank Gaffney, this is his little slide in this program he gave last night. A little slide. Top national security expert in America, three biggest threats he sees, Sharia supremacism, or you might call it radical Islam, the Chinese Communist Party, and our vulnerable electric grid. Uh, on impeachment, silver lining, maybe recapturing foreign policy, taking back control of the State Department. The only significant reveal of the impeachment sham is showing how decades of elitism and eight years of Obama have embedded a deep state of interagency bureaucrats who both sincerely and arrogantly believe that they and not the president create and execute American foreign policy. I want to add a point very, very quickly. They do this because they think they're smarter than the American people, smarter than the president. They know best. They think what they're doing is right because they think they're smarter than everybody else. These deep state apparatchiks have also apparently been bought off by or else believe in George Soros open society socialist ideals which are antithetical to America we should not be funding anything George Soros created if the impeachment sham ultimately enables and empowers a sharp u-turn on who defines and executes US foreign policy maybe it will accomplish something good and finally on Epstein's death Prison guards were arrested for falsifying records. Prison official says FBI has opened a criminal enterprise investigation into Epstein's death. Epstein's victims, the, especially the underage girls, deserve the accountability of an investigation. Epstein's clientele, no matter who and how powerful, and the American people deserve a demonstration that the rule of law applies to everyone. The Epstein investigation and the Barr-Durham investigation are monumental to the future of America to prove that America is still governed by the rule of law, not the rule of men. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for listening. Email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. Please like this Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube. Comment. I love talking with you. I love talking every day about preserving America, the most extraordinary experiment in human liberty ever to bless this earth. Speak up for America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk?
talk truth about America. <laughs>